Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. What's going on with all these aerial objects? Canada needs a tougher bail system. The Ticats go on the prowl for free agents. An HR expert says some workplace romances are illegal. A Hamilton Valentine's Day event gets spicy. And Dave Thomas climbed to stardom. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There have been questions and, and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. It drew some chuckles at the White House. That's White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre uh, reflecting on a reporter's question about whether or not these aerial objects, and we've seen, what, four of them over the last 10 days being shot out of the sky uh, here in North America, whether or not they're extraterrestrial. Uh, Certainly, it has fueled several conspiracy theories on the Internet, because, you know, why not? But officials have really not shed a, a large light on the origins or the purpose of these objects that have been shot down over uh, northern Alaska, West Central Yukon, over Lake Huron over the weekend. So what is going on, and should we be concerned? Jonathan Berkshire Miller is a senior fellow and director of foreign affairs, national defense, and national security at the McDonald laurier Institute, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jonathan, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. Should we be worried about these aerial objects? Well, I think we should be worried to a point. I mean, I think there's an extent of our worry where, where it should be, but... Um, you know, these objects haven't shown um, an ability, for example, to have weapons attached to them. Um, so that is a relief in, in some sense. Um, as the White House secretary uh, lampooned, we don't have any uh, evidence or intelligence that suggests that these are uh, not of our world, which is also a positive development, I guess. <laughs> um, but on the uh, on the negative side, um, we're not quite sure of the details of this, and I think that is deeply concerning. We know uh, from the first balloon, the large balloon, which was the size of, uh, of, of a couple uh, school buses, uh, that was shot down over the uh, Carolinas. Um, we do know that that was Chinese of origin, so the Chinese have admitted that. The nature of that balloon, I think, is, is in dispute. I think it's, it seems very clear from the United States, which is uh, now uh, retrieving that debris where they, they are aware that there's spy technology on that balloon. Um, the other three devices, uh, unidentified objects that have been shot down, as you mentioned, one uh, in the Yukon, uh, one uh, over Alaska, and the other one in Lake Huron, uh, we're not sure yet because we don't have the debris collected. Those are smaller devices, um, the size of a small car and a cylinder in shape, as you probably heard some of the description from the, the defense officials, but we're just not sure exactly what those devices are meant to do um, and the origin. But if we do find out, I guess my last point, if we do find out that those devices are all connected and and hypothetically they're all connected by one state actor, which would be China, I think that that, that has some significant implications for us. That's probably, if that comes to be, that will certainly answer why we're suddenly seeing all these flying objects all of a sudden. Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether this, you know, I think that there's a lot of speculation and again, hopefully we'll be able to, to understand more in the coming weeks, but uh, that this is a, a concerted a campaign, not just a one-off, um, you know, of one intelligence operation that's gone wrong uh, due to high winds, uh, which I think the Chinese may may make us believe. Um, if we if there's an indication that all of these are connected into one event, um, that will be significant. And I think it will also be significant to see, um, has this happened in the past? Because I think there's been reports 
as well. Uh, for example, that there's been some balloon surveillance during the Trump administration over the United States. Uh, those haven't been confirmed, but there has been reports of that. Um, I think there's also been reports uh, that there have been similar balloon incidents uh, over Taiwan, for example, which is closer to China, uh, over Japan, uh, and uh, over other parts of the world. So I think we have to, there's a lot that we have to suss out in the coming weeks. Part of me says, what's the big deal? Because China, the U.S., Russia, the U.K., you name the, the major player on the political scene, on the global scene, and they all have satellites in our atmosphere, I'm, I'm guessing taking pictures. Uh, should we be making a bigger deal out of what we're seeing now? Well, I think there's a couple of differences. I, I agree. I mean, n- number one, that was one of my first reactions is that the Chinese have, if it's the Chinese involved in all of these, um, uh, definitely was for the first one. They have advanced technologies, as you mentioned, uh, satellites, et cetera. Uh, in addition to some of the things that uh, citizens willingly give away on applications, social media, et cetera. So I think there's many ways that they can procure information and intelligence. The benefit, I think, of, of something old school like a balloon is that it can be slow moving, um, a lower in altitude, uh, that can help for um, more high definition photography at a slower pace. But I think even more pernicious, uh, and again, we have to figure out the intelligence that comes out of this, could be the signals intelligence that comes out of this, um, being able to loiter in, in uh, the airspace for that long period of time could be able to intercept signals, uh, sensitive military signals, uh, both from the United States and Canada and other actors where they're using these technologies. So there are, you know, it's not necessarily like one one technology is better than the other, but there are some different capabilities that a balloon would have. Um, and the second um, element that I would say um, is that, you know, this there's a possibility, frankly, of these objects, if they were to interfere with civilian air traffic or if they were to, in, you know, uh, malfunction and fall into the ground, that that really could uh, provide, um, you know, civilian casualties on the ground or other sort of um, unfortunate accidents. So I think that's, you know, not to say satellites don't have that capability as well, but it's a bit more rare because of their uh, where they are in orbit. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a different um, situation with the balloons. Jonathan, uh, great um, insight into this uh, very interesting topic, and thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That's Jonathan Brookshire Miller, Senior Fellow and Director of Foreign Affairs, National Defense, and National Security at the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bail reform has been in the news for the last little while, and for good reason. It was really heightened following the death of OPP Constable Greg Pierstella in Hagersville after we learned that one of the accused was out on bail at the time. Justice Minister David Lametti says he's giving serious consideration, air quotes, to reforming bail laws in this country, but... Really, instead of considering changes, why not make some of these much-needed changes? Make them mean something. All of this comes as a conservative MP has tabled a private member's bill to create a stricter bail system for serious repeat gun offenders. That conservative MP joins us now. Frank Caputo is the MP for Kamloops, Thompson, Caribou, and a member of the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights. Uh, Mr. Caputo, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. I'm great. How are you today? I'm good. What do you want to see adopted here with bail reform? Uh, well, you know, there are a number of things. The, 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 what I was looking at, Rick, was 
a small step in the long journey when it comes to bail reform. I actually have another private member's bill that I've tabled on bail. I was previously a Crown prosecutor before I went into politics, so I know this area quite well. Uh, one of the things that we have to look at is who's committing the most offences. And when it comes to the offences we want to really target, we're looking at the most serious offences, gun offences. So what I looked at was the people who've committed an offence before and are, are put on what we call a weapons prohibition, as in um, the court has said you don't get to have a gun because you've committed a serious offence like assault with a weapon or assault causing bodily harm, indictable offences, murder, aggravated assault, things like that. Um, or a judge has put you on a prohibition and then you're alleged to have committed a serious gun offense. So we, we went after the most serious firearms offenses. If you put those two things together, then um, what I did with my bill was to create kind of a, a steeper hill to climb, if you will, in order to get bail. Uh, the judge would still have a discretion to to grant bail, uh, but it would just make it more difficult for the accused in those situations. It's part of this problem, too, that in some cases the bail conditions are not being properly enforced when a criminal breaks those conditions? How, how should this be addressed? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I mean, that that's largely a, a police question. I mean, I, I hear things, you know, obviously through my, my prior position, you do hear things, there's a lot of frustration, I think, among policing communities when, you know, the people are arrested and we, we call it catch and release, that there there's really no consequence. Uh, what this, a lot of this comes down to, Rick, in my view, is a failure to respond to case law. You know, the court, Parliament makes the laws, the courts interpret them, and the courts interpret them one way, and then Parliament should react, and, and Parliament hasn't reacted to some pretty significant case law over the last four or five years. So what do you think the holdup is from a parliamentary standpoint? I'm, I'm actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually quite disappointed, um, to be candid with you. I thought that when I came back from Christmas, the Christmas break, I thought, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that the minister will, will at least table something. You, you've got all 13 premiers from the 10 provinces and three territories begging for bail reform. Uh, we have an NDP premier in British Columbia asking for bail reform. I ran into him over the holidays. And so I thought, you know what, we're going to see something. And if you look at his his answers and question period from January 30th and 31st, it was really, in my view, saying, you know, well, we're open to good ideas, but and and his tune has changed a little bit in the last couple of uh, couple of weeks, as you put it, air quotes, serious consideration. Um, so there, there's a there's a time to think, and then there's a time to act. And, and in my view, we're we're well past thinking and well into acting. For for what you are proposing, would this be a massive overhaul of what we currently have? No, this is this is this is really a, a tiny change. And, and as I say, it's a it's a small it's a small step in the long journey, Rick. In that uh, I'm looking at who causes a disproportionate amount of serious firearms crime. Sometimes people are, are, are called prolific offenders. And, and in, in this bill, we're not talking about the person who, you know, who shoplifts regularly or who's a nuisance on the street corner, those types of things. I, I'm, I'm targeting the most serious of firearms offenders. And that's not to say it's not important because it targets a, a small group. It actually, in my view, is even most important. I thought, who should we be going after but those who cause the mis- most disproportionate form of violence? But if you look at my other bill, Bill C-274, for instance, it's looking at people who've just committed so many offenses. And I was speaking with a prosecutor not long ago, and this is in British Columbia, mind you, where they said, you know, oftentimes you have to see four to six open court files. So this isn't just offenses. These are separate instances of 
of offending, you know, January 1st, January 4th, January 7th, like that, before a judge will even look at, 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 at uh, denying bail. So we have a problem. Um, and uh, and the whole system needs overhaul. People are begging for it. Police are begging for it. The premiers are begging for it. And most importantly, Canadians are begging for it. Well, let's hope we can fix it in fairly soon. Mr. Caputo, appreciate your time today. Good luck with this private member's bill. Great. Thank you very much, Rick. All the best. Same to you. Frank Caputo, MP for Kamloops Thompson Caribou, member of the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights, has a private member's bill to create a stricter bail system for those serious repeat gun offenders. So targeted and I think very much needed. We'll see if it happens. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Canadian Football League's free agency period officially opens at 12.01 p.m. today. What are the main priorities for the Hamilton Tiger Cats? And what are some of the other teams thinking about doing this afternoon and beyond? Justin Dunk is the founder of Three Down Nation and a CFL analyst with Sportsnet and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Justin, good morning. How are you? Doing well, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Good morning to you. Uh, we've had uh, n- a number of players move from team to team during this uh, so-called non-tampering window for free agents. Your thoughts on what we've seen over the last week? There's been a lot of agreed to terms, and I think a lot of those discussions will become official today. So I'm very curious to see if the majority of players stick with those agreed to terms, and I think that will likely happen. But it's been a very active negotiating week for players, teams, and agents across the league. As a fan, is is this window a good thing? Do you like it? I do really like it from a number of perspectives and especially from the fan perspective because teams can get an idea of a player, talk to them for a while. You can actually, if you wanted to, fly players into your city and have meetings with them. And you can obviously have multiple meetings, be it over Zoom or over the phone, to get comfortable with signing these potential free agents instead of the old way of free agency where it used to open, as you mentioned, at 12.01 on the stated day, and then it was just a race to offer a bunch of money, and you didn't really get to know the free agents that much, so you were taking a little bit more of a risk. So I like the extra time for a lot of reasons so that the matches have a better chance of panning out. For me, from a from a from just a pure fan perspective, it gets the league on the lips of many people when it wouldn't necessarily uh, be the case. Uh, the other factor is, I would assume that a few players who are entering this window and signing these uh, non-tampering deals, if you will, for lack of a better term, are getting a little more money than perhaps they traditionally would. Would you agree with that? It totally depends on the player. I don't think the window necessarily gets players more money. I think it just really smooths out the process. So, yeah, there has been some more money, especially thrown at the receiver position. We've seen a couple guys get contracts upwards of $250,000 getting into that $300,000 range. But I don't think it necessarily means more money because the CFL salary cap has been flat for a number of years. Justin Dunk is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Justin is the founder of Three Down Nation, CFL analyst with Sportsnet, and joining us to talk about CFL free agency, which officially begins today. All right, let's nail down what the Ticats' plan and priorities are. What's your sense on what uh, Coach Orlando Steinauer hopes to do today? I would imagine he hopes to make a lot of these agreed to terms official. So the Tiger Cats have been in hot pursuit of all-star running back James Butler, who had a 1,000-yard rushing season. I think we may have lost Justin Dunk. 
I think he, I think he tapped out. I think he got zoomed out, so to speak. <laughs> and we were just getting to the good part. What the heck are the Ticats going to do today? Well, he mentioned the name James Butler, who has enjoyed a great start to his CFL career at the running back position in BC and would be a, I think, an upgrade for this Ticats team. You know, Wes Hills, who, you know, has signed a deal with Ottawa and that could be made official today along with a number of other Ticats who are going <laughs> to play for Sean Burke uh, with the Red Blacks. But getting a guy like James Butler, who is a good blocker out of the backfield, can catch the football, an awesome running back, would be a big upgrade at that position. we got Justin Dunk back here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I was just saying, we were getting to the good part, and we lost you. The Ticats' plans and priorities. You mentioned James Butler, who I think would be a huge upgrade in the backfield. He really would be, and the Ticats have been pursuing him throughout this negotiating window, so I think that's definitely a target for the Tiger Cats. I've been told that they have re-signed Tim White, who was a CFL All-Star receiver last year for the Tiger Cats, so that looks like it will be Bolivar Mitchell's number one target. He's an up-and-coming receiver, but I do think they're going to lose Stephen Dunbar Jr. to the Edmonton Elks. He's agreed to terms on a contract over there, and I think on defense, the Tiger Cats are going to look to upgrade that defensive line with Casey Sales in the middle there, a young defensive tackle who's under the radar, played for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, so has a championship pedigree. And I think we're going to see some change, especially at linebacker. Jovan Santos-Knox has agreed to terms on a contract with the Ottawa Red Blacks, so I believe that the Tiger Cats will then look to bring in Jameer Thurman, who they've agreed to terms on a contract with from the Calgary Stampeders, an outstanding, very versatile middle linebacker. And I think there could be some change in the secondary. We saw Carriel Brooks released. I was told that was related to salary cap reasons. So I think they're trying to open up some money. And a guy that I think they'd really like to bring back if they can is Jamal Roll, who is an outstanding corner on the weak side. But he seems like he's going to hit the open market. Same for Cam Kelly, and I think that could possibly happen for Simone Lawrence as well. The other area I think the Ticats will look to upgrade is the offensive line. So I think those are a number of the areas where the Ticats go to players coming in or coming out. The uh, the one name beyond Simone Lawrence on what the Ticats are going to do with this player is Dane Evans. Uh, you know, Bo Levi Mitchell's signed a big deal with Hamilton. We have uh, Matt Schiltz, who's under contract for this upcoming season. Uh, we only got about a minute, but what's your sense on what happens with Dane Evans? The Tigers have been open to taking trade calls on Dane Evans, and he's not due any money until he gets to training camp with whatever team that is on his current contract. The Tiger Cats are not going to be able to fit his four hundred plus thousand dollars under the salary cap while putting together the rest of the roster with Mitchell making five hundred twenty thousand dollars, especially at the quarterback position. So, I would imagine in the near future, Evans is either traded or released, and I think the team that would make the most sense for him is actually just down. The QEW, I'm not sure if McLeod Bethel-Thompson is going to come north of the border to play for the Argos this year, and they would like to have a veteran in there if Chad Kelly is indeed going to win that starting job. So that's what I could see happening with Evan. Well, we shall see. Justin, appreciate the time today, and uh, enjoy the uh, start of free, uh, CFL free agency. You bet. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Justin Dunk, founder of Three Down Nation, CFL analyst with Sportsnet. Uh, aside from Toronto for a landing spot for Dane Evans, got to look to Montreal as well. You know, they need a lot of players in Montreal as they go through an ownership change there. 
and uh, Dane Evans might in fact find himself in an Alouette's uniform or an Argonaut's uniform. As long as he doesn't pull a Brandon Banks, that was tough to watch. I mean, congrats to Speedy B, but man, oh man. It would look much better hoisting the Grey Cup in black and gold as opposed to double blue. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I've decided that I will step down as mayor so that I can take the time to reflect on my mistakes and to do the work of rebuilding the trust of my family. I'll be working with the city manager, city clerk, and the deputy mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, to ensure an orderly transition in the coming days. Well, as Toronto's mayor, John Tory, prepares to step down after admitting to an inappropriate relationship with a former staffer, many experts say preparation is the key to protecting both employees and employers from the risks of such relationships create. Having a plan makes a huge difference. Now, you also got to follow that plan. Kellyanne Shikolari is an HR advisory manager with Peninsula Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kellyanne, welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. I am good today. What is your reaction to the situation that John Tory finds himself in? Well, it's it's one of those scenarios that is just bound to happen. Um, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but for lack of better terms, it's bound to happen. Um not just this scenario, this is one that was publicized, but you know, in, probably in your circle of friends, in my circle of friends, a lot of individuals have known their significant others um, in the workplace. Um, so you mentioned earlier being prepared. That's technically what I would say is the most important thing to understand here. This is something, like I said, that was publicized, but as an employer, you want to be prepared for this kind of event because as you can see, it disrupts your, um, your day-to-day, disrupts your workplace. Absolutely. And, you know, this scenario that is playing out in Toronto uh, at City Hall has played out in workplaces for for many, many years. The the issue, though, is, you know, these these workplace romances can create a challenge for both employers and employees. How should managers handle it? Do they have to address it with these uh, with their staff? Absolutely. We always say it all starts with the the onboarding. The onboarding is that first step where you as an employee are presented with what we call an employment contract. But on top of that, there should be other uh, documents, an employee handbook that will include a policy about workplace interpersonal relationships, uh, will include also a workplace violence and harassment policy. The reason why we want that to be a combination of documents is because one will identify the stance that the company has with regards to this type of uh, event. How would you go as an employee about um, addressing this, reporting this? Um, and also, if things were to go sour, how is the company going to react? So what do you expect as an employee? So everyone needs to be on the same page from the get-go. That's the important thing is. Um, managers, you know, based on the policy that they have within their environment, there are companies that have chosen to be a bit more strict and companies that have chosen to be more uh, lenient. The first step usually when this happens and you are aware uh, of this scenario is to create possibly a separation between the two individuals if they are in the same department, if there is a situation where one is a manager, one is a, a subordinate. So you want to be aware of the scenario, always keeping in mind that there might be a bit of a negative impact if things were not to go 
uh, perfectly in that relationship. If anything, there's got to be a set of expectations. If you had two employees in the workplace who were romantically involved, the expectation is, uh, listen, while you're at work, you have to be an employee and get the job done as opposed to, well, doing anything else non-job related. Absolutely. Those are things that need to be clear uh, from the get-go. There, Again, there needs to be guidelines uh, with regards to what uh, the company uh, will do in terms of the steps they would take. As I mentioned earlier, some companies have, have the, an environment where they need to be very strict. Some are very lenient. I mean, there's some um, some concerns here in terms of, um, you know, uh, reducing company morale if you, if you really take a really hard stand against it. The only thing is be prepared, uh, have those conversations and allow for individuals to just come forward um, and work with you on how to make uh, this work in the workplace. Always, as you said, which is very important, focusing on getting the job done. We only got about 45 seconds. Are there certain circumstances in which romantic relationships at work could be illegal? Uh, there could be, absolutely. When we talk about conflict of interest, um, is something that you know one favors the other, being in a certain position, uh, understanding um, on how to uh, on how to react in those scenarios is very uh, important, and also a good in, internal investigation will help you uh, determine the next steps. Maybe it's something that you um, identify early, you put the measures in place, we reinforce the policy. If it's something that has been going on for a while, you might have to take that uh, step of just basically um, to, um, dismissing the employee. Well, hopefully that's some information our listeners can use if they find themselves in this uh, particular situation. Killian, always thanks for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Bye. That is Killian Chikolari, HR Advisory Manager with Peninsula Canada with some pretty good insight into what's going on in the workplace relationship-wise. Coming up in our final hour of Good Morning Hamilton, we have a Conservative MP who has some ideas on how we can reform the bail system in this country. And what would you put down as the best place and the worst place for a date, whether it's a first date or a 100th. That's coming up next year on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, today, as you probably already know, is Valentine's Day. Are you wondering what to do with a certain special someone? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hamilton Spice Factory is going to play host to a spicy event this evening presented by Emerson Arts Theatre. Joining us to talk about it is Emily Bollier and Mason Midsensky from Emerson Arts. Emily, Mason, good, good morning. morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, so tell us what's happening tonight. So tonight we are showcasing um, myself and Mason through some love songs for people to come and enjoy at the Spice Factory. So from 8 o'clock until 10 o'clock, we have um, a whole lineup from Etta James to the Ronettes, um, Tina Turner. We just have a, a wonderful variety of love songs for valentines or galentines whoever to come out and check out um we've got some snacks there's a cash bar it's just an overall great night of romance and fun mason are love songs the best kind of songs to sing they are I'll say this, they allot for the most amount of runs that a human being can do in a song. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, would you agree with that? 
Well, Mason uh, is more of a runner than I am when it comes to singing. But um, the thing about a love song is that when a performer is singing and when they're remembering or feeling that love and it's coming through Mm -hmm. over the airwaves, like it's just a special time. It's the two of us. We're best friends, but we love each other so much and we are just going to be giving all the positive vibes and sending that out as we're singing tonight. Yeah, and uh, we're going to remind our listeners here that uh, Emily and Mason have been kind enough to offer two free tickets to tonight's event at the Spice Factory. To win, you have to answer this Valentine's Day trivia question, and you can call producer Alicia in the studio now at 905-645-3221 or star 9900. The question is, in classical mythology, Cupid is the god of what? Call Alicia now, provide your answer. Uh, Mason, back to you. When when you're singing these romantic songs on Valentine's Day with a crowd filled with, you know, people who I think admire, at least love each other, you got to feel that energy in the room, right? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, palpable. You can feel the love in the air. We're gonna make we're gonna make more love with our voice and music. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some other things that Emerson Arts is involved in because if you go to the website emersonartscanada.com, there's there's a number of a number of other things that you're involved with. Emily, talk about when we're forty because this is absolutely an outstanding concept. Yes, this is awesome. So Mason is the playwright and he has written a uh, musical cabaret to the songs of the 1990s. And it's the premise, if we are single when we're 40, we'll get married. So we have a teenage cast in our first act and uh, they go through all the trials and tribulations of being 16. Um, a promise is made. And in act two, we have adult contemporary act. Their contemporaries, um, adults, who will be playing the same characters and telling the story from the point of 40 years old. It's, so that's ha- also happening at the Spice Factory, and that's taking place in March, on March 10th, 11th, and 12th. So we're really lucky at Emerson Arts because most of the things that we do are original. And um, Mason is a super playwright and a super writer, so he's constantly coming out with new art, new concepts, and we just sort of take it and run with it. So we've been really fortunate to have some awesome things happening in Hamilton and some great support. The When We're 40 is... is kind of a like a a, it's a going to be a great show but we also do some other things we do uh, singing telegrams we do customized murder mystery parties and we're just sort of out there to do whatever it is in terms of performance like we just love doing it so much and we're looking to expand our our audiences in Hamilton and just bring great music to um to the city our guests on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Emily Boulier and Mason Miedsedski, co-founders, artistic directors with Emerson Arts. You can find out more information online at emersonartscanada.com and also get tickets to tonight's spicy Valentine's Day at the Spice Factory. Uh, um, customized murder mysteries. How does this work? Go ahead. Mason. So how it works is uh, when you reach out, we ask for two weeks to write the party. So we write it from scratch. We send you a questionnaire with like um, some inside jokes or personality traits of you and your loved ones or your friends who are participating. And then we decide on a theme and we write the party based off of the theme you've selected and the information you've provided. Hmm. So everything is 
customized and everything is um, created fresh just for your party. And then we send you uh, there for four to 12 players and we'll send you four to 12 different scripts. I'm using air quotes over here uh, <laughs> to follow through and read through throughout the evening. And we like to tell people the more in character you get or the more you give to what you're doing, the more fun you get out of it. That is awesome. Mason, Emily, thanks for your time today. And again, we encourage all our listeners to check out the spicy Valentine's Day event tonight at the uh, Spice Factory. Again, tickets online, Emerson Arts Canada. And we still have a, ticket, a couple of tickets up for grabs to give with our trivia question today that we'll repeat uh, throughout the morning. Thanks for the time. Good luck tonight. Thanks Thank so you. much. That is Happy Valentine's Day. And right back at you, Emily Boulier and Mason Mietzetsky, co-founders, artistic directors with Emerson Arts. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Anyone who knows me knows I am a huge fan of SCTV. I mean, that show was just plain awesome hilarious, brilliant, Uh, one of the best shows in TV history, at least according to me. You may disagree. But it it really hit my mind when I got an email yesterday from a friend of the show, Bill Briou, um, talking about a kid from St. Catharines who eventually grew up to become not only a TV star, but a primetime Emmy Award winner and also a Juno Award winner, which I did not know until just the other day. Joining us now is Bill Brio, television critic and author, and you can find out all about him and what he does online at Brio.tv. Bill, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm uh, well, Rick. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. We're talking about the great Dave Thomas, and you recently sat down with him and um, chatted with him, and it's a podcast on your website. Uh, What drew you to Dave Thomas? Well, just the very thing that you were saying. uh, You know, SCTV is still, to me, the funniest thing I've ever seen on television. And, um, And my God, it's incredible to think that this year, it marks 40 years since Strange Brew was made, which was the sort of the spin-off movie that uh, Rick Moranis and uh, and Dave Thomas did as Bob and Doug McKenzie. Uh, but uh, yeah, it just, you know, and I've interviewed him several times over the years. He's not only uh, hilarious, but brilliant. Just on any subject, very interesting man. And uh, so I was happy to talk to him again on Brio TV, the podcast. On this podcast, you got into even even the days before he became a TV star. He was in advertising. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, uh, he he was born in uh, St. Catharines, but grew up essentially in Hamilton. Went to McMaster, and then uh, went into advertising in Toronto at an agency where he was sort of a junior guy. He was working on radio stuff for uh, Coca Cola, and he had a chance to. Uh, they asked him for some ideas. He went to New York with others, and he pitched his idea, and they loved it. And uh, they literally said, we want you on the TV account. And that day, he gets a phone call from his McMaster buddy, Eugene Levy, who um, says, hey, there's an opening on the Second City stage. Uh, What do you think? We want you. Are you in? And um, he had to make a decision because he was offered, you know, he had a career going in advertising. Uh, and, and literally on second city at the old fire hall, he'd be making $145 a week. <laughs> but, uh, of course, you know, he was also getting a chance to work with, uh, you know, John Candy, Joe Flaherty, Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, Rick Moranis, Catherine O'Hara, Harold Ramis, you know, Martin Short. So it was not a hard decision for Dave Thomas. 
Um, well, speaking of those SCTV uh, colleagues, did he have a favorite? Did he have a favorite to work with? You know, uh, everybody I, I talk to, I always ask for a John Candy story, and uh, you know, he gave me a couple of those. Um, he, uh, we know, and uh, Andrea Martin too. And I'd heard this on another podcast. She was a guest. There's a uh, Gilbert Gottfried, the comedian who passed away mm-hmm. about a year ago. He has an, um, the amazing Colossal podcast, and Andrea Martin was a guest on there, and they reran it recently. Um, and uh, just, you know, the the idea that she really brought the funny, you know, and uh, so brilliant with all her characterizations. Both the women on SCTV, Catherine O'Hara, uh, exceptional. And uh, so we talked a lot about her as well. We're talking with Bill Briou, television critic and author, and uh, recently did a podcast uh, interview with uh, the great Dave Thomas of SCTV fame and and various other uh, amazing projects. You can hear it online at Briou.tv. That's B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV. The um, Strange Brew, you brought that up, 40-year anniversary, I can't believe that, with uh, with Rick Moranis. That was a skit that obviously really took off because it was Canadiana, the Great White North, and all the hijinks that they got into. It did take off, eh? You know? Uh, and uh, <laughs> Don't be <laughs> yeah. a hoser, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and it was literally, you know, the, I think it aired uh, when it was airing in Canada, there was an obligation to do so much Canadian content. And they threw that together as just a, a as a obligation, you know. Uh, they, they literally mocked the idea that they had to do something Canadian by having two guys in toques sitting around with cases of two four, uh, and and eating back bacon and you know every other cliche they could think of, uh, and that came off. Uh, uh, you know, they had a hit album. Uh, you know, uh, Dave Thomas's brother Ian Thomas, of course, was a very talented singer-songwriter, uh, contributed to that. And uh, as you mentioned, I think one of Juno. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also, just listening to the podcast, completely forgot that there was a Dave Thomas show on TV. Yeah, it was very funny. It was a sketch series on CBS, the end of the 80s, I think, and uh, maybe 1990. And uh, yeah, like, you know, these summer series would come on. Dave had one. I think Martin Short did as well. Uh, but just Variety had kind of passed TV by. Uh, they didn't stick these shows, but I remember watching it, and it was very, very funny. And even more surprising, Rick, is that, you know, after a while, Dave Thomas completely changed lanes, started writing for procedurals like Bones and uh, The Blacklist. He wrote <laughs> drama for TV. Uh, the producer of that show had gone to U of T, um, Hart Hansen. And uh, he uh, was talking to Thomas and basically said, give me six ways to murder somebody. And Thomas did. And he said, oh, I love that first one. Write the script. You know, so he launched a whole new career, uh, you know, in in, uh, the 2000s. Wow, man, he's doing quite well. That is for sure. Bill, really appreciate the time. Uh, And we invite our listeners to check out the podcast online at brew.tv. Thanks a lot, Bill. My pleasure, Rick. Anytime. That is Bill Briou, television critic and author. Again, that website, B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV.
uh, find it, put it on your bookmarks. Great content if you're uh, at all interested in podcasts like this and stories about uh, some great uh, Canadian actors. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.